0: Welcome to Global Questions by YDS, the podcast breaking down global politics for young people who want to know more. Hello, I'm Joshua.
1: And I'm Hugh. You're listening to The Wrap-Up, your fortnightly dose of international news. After a bit of an extended break, we're back and ready to update you on what's been going on across the world. That's right. Let's begin.
0: The Sharia. The Islamic law applies to all, from the layman to the most powerful leader.
1: We are at war. That was the voice of a local Taliban governor in Afghanistan and Josh, I'm sure you could tell, but he was sounding very confident. And that's because with the US and its allies set to withdraw from the country in just over three months, the Taliban is in its strongest position since the US invasion of Afghanistan in 2001. In fact, the situation is getting so dire that thousands of Afghans are now leaving their homes to seek safety as the nation's armed forces are left to fight the Taliban on their own. Yeah,
0: it doesn't sound great. So what has the US and the Allied withdrawal entailed exactly?
1: Yeah, so the withdrawal received a lot of media attention in May, but since then coverage has been a lot less consistent. And so I think it would be really helpful to briefly explain what exactly has been going on. The U.S. invaded Afghanistan in 2001, following 9-11.
0: Good afternoon. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against Al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan.
1: And at that time, the Taliban, which is a fundamentalist Islamist organization, controlled nearly the entire country. In the weeks following its invasion, the U.S. was able to successfully install a new government But it never truly defeated the Taliban, who fled to the countryside to wage a 20-year-long insurgency. Astonishingly, it's estimated that the conflict has cost the US alone $2.3 trillion and has contributed to approximately 240,000 direct deaths in Afghanistan, in addition to many, many more indirect deaths.
0: So why, after all that cost, has the US decided to leave now?
1: That's a good question. Over the years, war exhaustion has been a big factor in the US and the other countries which have participated in the conflict. But that fatigue was reaching new heights when President Trump came to office in 2017. As we defend American lives, we are working to end America's wars in the Middle East, in Afghanistan, the determination and valor of our... As President, Trump repeatedly condemned America's failed war effort and sought a negotiated withdrawal with the Taliban. By 2020, his outgoing administration had entered into a direct agreement with the Taliban for a U.S. and Allied withdrawal by May of 2021. But when President Biden came into office, this withdrawal deadline was unilaterally extended to September 11 of this year. The September 11 withdrawal date is symbolic, as by the time the U.S. and Allied forces are out of the country, it will have been exactly two decades since the 9-11 attacks took place.
0: If I understand correctly, that would make the Afghan war the single longest running conflict in U.S. history. So how has the withdrawal been playing out in practice?
1: Well, you're right. It is America's longest war. But interestingly, the withdrawal itself has been surprisingly quick and on time. Uh, more than 50% of U.S. forces are already out of the country. And it seems as though the entire cohort of foreign troops will be out by the September 11 deadline. Key US allies such as Germany and Australia have all reciprocated the American withdrawal and will be out by September. However, Turkey has bucked the trends by offering to stick around and protect Afghanistan's main airport in the capital city of Kabul. But with so many foreign troops withdrawing, as we heard at the start of this report, the Taliban has become increasingly confident. Afghanistan is now being plagued by some of the worst violence it's seen since the U.S. invasion. And of course, by having to focus on packing up and leaving, the foreign militaries are not in a good position to assist the Afghan armed forces.
0: So what does life look like for Afghans on the ground then at the moment?
1: Yeah, unfortunately, the situation paints a very dire picture for the future of the country. The Taliban have been making new territorial gains, and in areas where they already exercise significant control, they've been consolidating power. And that's meant that thousands of Afghans who cooperated with coalition forces are now looking to leave the country. Meanwhile, hard-won women's rights in what has been traditionally an extremely conservative country are also at unprecedented risk. Additionally, thousands of civilians have been internally displaced in regions where the Taliban has launched new offensives. And the so-called Islamic State, which also maintains a presence in the country, has launched fresh attacks of its own. It seems like so
0: little has been accomplished in so many ways. So where does Afghanistan go from
1: here? Well, as scrapyard owners could probably tell you, the mountains of broken fridges, gym equipment and gutted generators speak to the scale of the US withdrawal. Afghan government soldiers will now have to fight the Taliban on their own. And as history has shown us, these kind of situations never really end well. The big question is going to be how successful the Taliban's offences will prove in the coming years. But given the Taliban has controlled the country before, they could always end up controlling it again.
0: Hugh, we're going to go to Myanmar now, which is reportedly teetering on the brink of a civil war. And if you've been following Myanmar in the news, you would have seen that for the last four months, the country has been in a state of chaos after its military staged a coup in February. Without warning, in the middle of the night, Myanmar's military made its move. Pre-dawn raids, the first confirmation it was seizing power. On the 1st of Feb, the military, which is also known as the Tatnador, arrested Myanmar's democratically elected leader, Aung San Suu Kyi, and declared a year-long state of emergency. And this was a really, really significant move because the Tatmadaw previously ruled Myanmar in a brutal dictatorship that actually lasted about 50 years. And it was only in 2011 that democracy was partially restored. So given that history... There was considerable opposition to the coup among Myanmar's population. Millions took to the streets, and government employees refused to work.
1: Factories, workplaces and shops are shuttered across Myanmar in response to calls for a
0: general strike. As well as local stores, international businesses like KFC
1: also shut their doors.
0: Unfortunately, the Tatmador responded to these protests as it usually does, and that is with extreme violence. So it opened fire on civilians, killing both adults and children. And so far, 849 people have been killed and nearly 6,000 detained by the military. But that hasn't stopped the protest movement. In fact, tensions have only increased. So having been unable to bring about change through demonstrations, protesters are now looking to arguably more violent methods of pushing back against Myanmar's military. So in the last few months, what we've seen is a growing trend of protesters travelling across Myanmar to receive battle training from rebel militia groups.
1: Wow, it certainly sounds like they're escalating, but who's running these rebel militia groups?
0: Well, they're largely run by ethnic minority groups who've been fighting against the military for decades. The Tatmadaw has long persecuted minority groups, with the most well-known example being the Rohingya. But there are other ethnic groups that have also been oppressed too, and each one of these ethnic groups has created its own militia to push back against the Tatmadaw. And the fact that these young protesters from Myanmar cities are now entering into alliances with these rural ethnic militias is actually quite significant, and it's led commentators to say that the size and diversity of this protest movement arguably makes it different from others in Myanmar's history, and it could mean that the conflict rages on and spirals into a full-scale civil war.
1: Yeah, with these alliances forming, do protesters have a realistic chance at beating back the military? Look, it's hard to tell
0: because despite their increased support, these rebel militias really lack the same resources that are available to the military. They're largely armed with homemade hunting rifles that they've carved out of wood. And they're up against a military that purchased 2.4 billion US dollars in weapons just during the last 10 years alone. And what's more... Despite their growing alliances, the rebel militias are still quite fractured in Myanmar. So there are at least 12 separate rebel armies, and attempts to get them to unite and to form a national defence force have so
1: far failed. So what has the effect been of all this turbulence on Myanmar's population then?
0: It's been pretty severe. So, for example, in Kaya State, which borders Thailand, Ongoing airstrikes by the military have forced up to 100,000 people to flee their villages and go and live in the jungle. And these people are largely cut off from food, from water, and from medicine. And the UN just recently warned of a huge death toll if supplies aren't delivered to the area soon. But by all accounts, it looks like the Tatmador is so far refusing to listen to those pleas. It's allegedly put down landmines to prevent people from leaving the forest and even blocked aid convoys from reaching the region.
1: Yeah, wow. Um, If I understand correctly, that's not the only battle the military is currently fighting, though.
0: Yeah, you're right. So in addition to these physical battles that they're fighting against the protest movement, they're also engaging in a significant legal battle. Now, More charges have been brought against Myanmar's elected leader Aung San Suu Kyi, whose government was toppled by the military in a coup in February. State-run media said that Ms. Suu Kyi now faced corruption charges linked to a charity set up in memory of her mother. Uh, she's also accused of accepting... So since it arrested Aung San Suu Kyi in February, the military has charged her with multiple offences in order to justify her ongoing detention. Initially, they accused her of illegally importing walkie-talkies, and then they later charged her with citing public unrest and breaching the Official Secrets Act. But these recent corruption charges are by far the most serious, and they could see her jailed for up to 15 years. And given Suu Kyi is currently 75 years old, if she is jailed for that long, it would pretty much end her political career and would deprive Myanmar's opposition of its long-term leader. So keep an eye on updates from Myanmar, because the situation is clearly so volatile and likely to remain so for a long time yet.
1: Bitcoiners around the world, the time has come. We are ready. Queda aprobada la ley de Bitcoin. Josh, this is going to sound like something out of a sci-fi movie, but for the first time ever, a country has made Bitcoin one of its official currencies. Following a decision from President Nayib Bukele, the small Central American country of El Salvador has integrated Bitcoin into its economy, making it an official currency alongside the US dollar.
0: Why would a country suddenly take Bitcoin seriously enough to make it an official currency?
1: It's a good question, and I think to explain why a country would want to use Bitcoin, it might be best to start off with an explanation of what Bitcoin is. Bitcoin is an entirely digital currency that's used across the world to validate what are normally online transactions, and this makes Bitcoin an ideal currency in some respects, as it's not tied to any one country or authority. But as for why El Salvador has decided to use Bitcoin as an official currency, the main justification has been Bitcoin's status as a global currency. Because Bitcoin can be exchanged quickly and securely across national borders, it's an ideal way to send money back home in the form of remittance payments. And that aspect alone is really important in a country like El Salvador, which relies on remittance payments from its citizens living abroad in places such as the United States. In fact, there are so many Salvadorians living in the US that in 2001, the diaspora's combined personal incomes exceeded the entire Salvadoran economy. Economists say that most every aspect of economic activity here in Central America's smallest nation is driven by the money migrants send home. That helps to explain why remittance payments alone account for 21% of El Salvador's GDP, as well as why the Salvadoran government would be eager to make the process of sending money back to the country as easy as possible.
0: Mm, So it sounds like remittances are really central to this decision then.
1: Absolutely. Uh, In fact, accessing finance and savings in general is a really big problem in countries like El Salvador. Roughly 70% of the country's population is what we call unbanked. So people who are unbanked don't have a bank account. And in short, they have no way of storing their money or allowing it to grow. And unfortunately, the relative absence of financial services in El Salvador makes the remittance process very difficult.
0: Right. So how does Bitcoin make that process easier then?
1: Instead of needing a bank account and long visits to Western Union, Salvadorans can simply download an app on their phone to send and receive Bitcoin. And that's good news for the 70% of the population, which is unbanked. The fact that the currency is now legal tender means that businesses are actually required to accept it as payment alongside the other official currency, the US dollar.
0: Wow. So are we likely to see Bitcoin replace the US dollar in day-to-day life in El Salvador?
1: Well, as always, it's hard to say. While Bitcoin remittances are much easier to send than U.S. dollars, the fact that the price of Bitcoin fluctuates so insanely is going to make it very impractical for day-to-day commerce. Bitcoin plummeted 30% this morning to a low near 30000 a coin a level that it hasn't seen since January before rebounding back near $40,000.
0: Other cryptocurrencies also plunged with a... Th-
1: However, the Salvadoran government is taking steps to make it easier for its citizens to exchange Bitcoin into U.S. dollars, But with other Latin American countries in a similar financial position to El Salvador looking on with keen interest, if the country's experiment with Bitcoin succeeds, we might start to see the global cryptocurrency take on a new life as legal tender in various economies. So it's definitely something to keep an eye on. We must look
0: beyond the fear that prompts us to judge or control others. We must hold ourselves and each other accountable for ending these inequalities now. Our final story concerns one of the deadliest viral outbreaks of modern times. And believe it or not, I'm not talking about COVID-19. I'm talking about a crisis that's been running for 40 years and killed nearly 35 million people. And that is the HIV-AIDS epidemic. So last week, the UN General Assembly met up in New York and passed a political declaration that said that the world would try to end AIDS as a public health threat by 2030. And you'd think that passing this declaration would have been relatively easy. After all, COVID has shown us the way that viruses can completely disrupt society. But surprisingly, passing this declaration wasn't simple at all. In fact, it was actually pretty controversial So I thought we'd dive into the inner workings of the UN for a moment and look at why the declaration caused a bit of a fuss.
1: Yeah, okay. Let's start with the basics. Um, Why did the UN meet to discuss HIV and AIDS this past week?
0: Well, the meeting was part of a series of global summits that are held every five years to brainstorm ways to cure HIV and AIDS. And there was particular urgency around this year's meeting, because at the last summit, the UN pledged to lower the amount of annual HIV infections to less than half a million by 2021, and that goal hasn't been met. In fact, last year, one and a half million people were infected with HIV, and nearly 700,000
1: died. Given that background, what were the major disagreements about at this year's meeting?
0: Well, the disagreements can really be broken into three key themes. The first one concerned strategies to protect people who are at high risk of contracting HIV and AIDS. So the EU and US demanded that other countries wind back laws that criminalise same-sex relationships, sex work and drug use. And that's because people from these groups generally tend to have a higher risk of contracting HIV and AIDS. But of course, they're less likely to seek medical help if it means they could also be prosecuted. However, this proposal was largely opposed by the African bloc at the UN, and they disagreed largely on cultural and religious grounds, and in the end, the declaration kind of met in the middle. It committed countries to winding back laws that target people at risk of HIV, but also affirmed the so-called sovereign right of nations to implement the declaration in line with their national laws, which I think pretty much gives countries a way out of it if they want
1: to. And what was the second disagreement?
0: Well, the second controversy really concerned women's reproductive autonomy. So the draft declaration urged member states to empower women and girls to take charge of their reproductive health. And again, you'd think that that would be pretty uncontroversial. However, it also faced criticism from three member states – Saudi Arabia, Russia, and the Vatican. And they all tried to remove these references to women's reproductive health, again, for religious and cultural reasons. But their attempt failed and the section on women's rights ended up staying in.
1: Yeah, okay. And what
0: was the third disagreement? Well, this one I think is really intriguing, especially in light of COVID-19. So it concerned patent protections for HIV drugs, so the first draft of the declaration called for patents to be indefinitely lifted from HIV medication, but this time there was huge opposition from the EU and the US. They succeeded in the end in watering down the declaration so that it just said patents were important in fighting HIV and AIDS.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting, especially because the EU and the US are both pretty eager typically to give out AIDS. So why were they opposed to lifting patents?
0: Well, look, it's probably because both of them are home to major pharmaceutical companies. And these companies benefit enormously from the existing patent system. And so no doubt they lobby the EU and the US governments to keep it in place. As a result, it's pretty usual for the EU to oppose any patent waivers. For example, it's also opposed to lifting patents on COVID vaccines. For the US, it's a little more complex. So you might remember that Biden announced just last month that the U.S. would support removing patents for COVID vaccines. Yet a month later, in the context of ending HIV and AIDS, the U.S. has taken the opposite approach. And it's a pretty big inconsistency. So I think the question is, how will the U.S. reconcile these two approaches? Will it go back to opposing patent waivers in general? Or will its decision regarding COVID vaccines force it to support the removal of patents over other key medications? So I have to wait and see there.
1: That's all for this wrap up. Stay tuned for next week's in-depth episode on the
0: climate. In the meantime, follow us, Global Questions, on Instagram or check out our website. Links are in the episode description.
1: We'll see you in a fortnight.